All right, well, we are continuing uh, in our series called This Is Us, uh, where we're exploring the inescapable awkwardness and importance of community. Last week, I gave a little overview of how to find, build, deepen, and preserve and sustain community. If you missed it, you can go back and listen to our podcast. We, uh, we record all of our sermons, and you can find that on our website or through iTunes. Um, but starting today, we're going to look at specific activities that can destroy community and how we can order our lives in such a way that we can establish and continue that and continue community. Uh, my friend and author, James Brian Smith, says the enemy of spiritual formation in our day is exhaustion. We tend to cram a lot of things into our life. And we rush around to get it all done, and at the end of the day, we're exhausted. Our relationship with God suffers, and our relationships with the people in our lives suffer. Think about all the things that are going on in your life right now. Think about all the things that you have to do. Think about all the demands, and the commitments, and the schedules, and the work, and the family. And this time of year can feel so full, and so often we approach it just to add more. As you know, school's back in session, and that means that uh, students are heading back to class, parents are heading back into therapy, people are signing up for school leagues and sports committees and uh, community groups and all sorts of stuff, and it's just sign-up season. And there's sort of a danger that goes along with this time of year, isn't there? And the danger is we try to add to our lives only by addition. And in the end, we feel overcommitted, overwhelmed, and overburdened. Many of you have been there, or maybe you're living there right now. I've talked to some people whose calendars are already booked up through November. Life is just this activity blur, not something we savor or experience or even remember. Years ago, John Ortberg spoke about the blur of activity that often runs our lives. He said that we live in a world that just pressures us to move quickly from one thing to the next, and then our days just seem to dissipate. He cited a cardiologist by the name of Meyer Friedman who said we suffer from an epidemic in our society called hurried sickness, where we worship speed. Back in the 90s, Domino's Pizza discovered that speed is so central to the American way of life, their business experienced massive growth, where they became the number one pizza chain when they made a guarantee to their customers. They said, we'll get a pizza to you within 30 minutes, or the pizza's on us. A guy who used to drive for Domino's was interviewed one day. He said when he had put the Domino's sign on top of his car, other drivers would pull over to the side of the road. You know how like we used to do for ambulances and fire trucks. We don't do that for them anymore, but we do it for the Domino's guy because we worship speed. And the CEO for Domino's said, we don't sell pizza, we sell delivery. And if you've ever eaten a Domino's pizza, <laughs> we worship speed. And we all seem to be in a hurry. So we're going to do a mass confession of hurry right here today. And if you think you might suffer from hurry sickness, just as a way of leveling the playing field, I'm going to ask you to physically raise your hand as a way of publicly testifying that you suffer from this disease. Okay? So if you suffer from hurry sickness, 
Here are just some signs that you experience. There's just this nagging sense that there's not enough time. You multitask, you cram activities into your day. You're looking for every second you can buy. And after a while, you do it automatically. For instance, you come to a stoplight. There are two lanes, one car in each lane. You find yourself guessing based on the year, make, and model of both cars, which car is going to pull away the fastest. So you get behind that car because, God forbid, you should get stuck behind that car. You know, the slower of the cars. I mean, oh, you lose five seconds out of your day. Be horrible. When you go to the grocery store, you don't just get in line. You count before you get in how many people in each line multiplied by how many items are in each cart, factoring in how alert each checkout clerk looks. And if you're really sick, if you're really sick, not only do you do all of that stuff, but if you get into line A, you keep track of the person who would have been you in line B. Because if line B you leaves a store and you're still in line A, you're a little depressed for the next few hours because you lost the hurry game. So now that you know how many of you suffer from hurry sickness, raise your hands up high. Look, just raise them up high. Look around this room. This is a sick church, man. Years ago, John Erpberg asked one of his mentors, Dallas Willard, for advice about how to handle the increasing pressures of life. Things like family and finances, the pressure of ministry and leadership. And John expected to hear a list of things he needed to start doing, like pray more or focus more or read more or study more or be more spiritual. You ever feel that burden, especially at church? You just feel, gosh, I've got to do more. I've got to be more spiritual. And John was expecting to hear a litany of things he needed to do. But instead, there was this long pause. And then Dallas said, very plainly, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And John asked, okay, what else? And after another long pause, Dallas said, there's nothing else. You must, we must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. Here's our hypothetical Here's what I want us to talk about. What if hurry is actually one of, if not the greatest single single greatest barriers to your experience of God and community in your life? I say hypothetical because most of us think hurry is a good thing or at least a neutral thing. It's a way to get more done or do more faster or get from point A to point B a little quicker. But what if, just for, just for the sake of our time this morning, that frantic pace, that never ceasing, always multitasking, always trying to do more and faster and better is the main thing that's hurting your life and your relationships and your marriage and your family, your work, your sense of self, your sense of joy, your sense of peace. In addition to a sense of not having time to give, there are some other real clear signs of hurry sickness if we pay attention. And it's not only hurting our spiritual lives, it's hurting our sense of real community, 
So I want to walk through some of these signs with you now. And so the first sign is a lack of meaning or depth or joy in life. As you try to do more and more, less of it feels meaningful. Less of it feels significant. It's kind of that blur of activity I mentioned where you hardly remember what you did yesterday or last week. It was just a lot of stuff you did. There's a lack of meaning in life if we look at the last week of our lives and we're not even sure what we did. An economist named Jeremy Rifkin put it this way in a book called Time Wars. He says, Despite our alleged efficiency, we seem to have less time for ourselves and far less time for each other. We have quickened the pace of life only to become less patient. We have become more organized, but less spontaneous, um, less joyful. We are better prepared to act on the future, but less able to enjoy the present and reflect on the past. Isn't that true? Rifkin continues, Today, we have surrounded ourselves with time-saving technology, only to be overwhelmed by plans that cannot be carried out, appointments that cannot be honored, Schedules that cannot be fulfilled and deadlines that cannot be met. And this is why hurried people never look happy. Have you ever seen somebody tailgating you in traffic with a big smile on their face just enjoying life? Of course not. You can't really hurry and smile. You can't really hurry and experience peace and joy. And there's a lack of meaning in it. Another sign of hurry sickness is a lack of compassion. People who are in a hurry simply don't have time to help. Years ago, there's actually an experiment involving students at Princeton Theological Seminary. These students were brought together and asked to prepare a short sermon on the parable of the Good Samaritan. And many of you know this parable. And then they had to walk to a different building to present the message. On the way up to their building, each student was set up. It was staged to encounter a person who was slumped over, groaning, and in clear distress. Does anybody know where this is going? And the question was, would a seminary student who was studying to become a pastor and serve in a church, who was about to give a sermon on the Good Samaritan, stop and help someone in need? And there was a catch. There were different groups of students. One group of students were told that they were late, that they were out of time. Another group of students were told they had plenty of time. You want to know what happened? Most of the students, surprisingly, didn't stop. But the real shocking factor was only one out of ten students who were in a hurry stopped to help. One out of 10 students walking to give a sermon on helping a person in need stop to help a person in need. Why? It's not because they're cold-hearted and cruel. It was very simple. They were in a hurry. They were just in a regular hurry. And it sounds crazy, but are we really that different? Am I really that different? I thought about that this week. How often I just rush by someone else in need. Maybe my wife or a friend, maybe a colleague at work, somebody in crisis. How often do you miss opportunities to build community because you're in a rush? 
When we're in a hurry, we don't have time to help. Another sign of hurry sickness is a lack of grace. So far, we've talked about being in a hurry, but when hurry is in you, you're going to feel more and more deprived of grace. We live hurried lives, and when we do so, we're not storing up extra time. We're actually storing up things like impatience and frustration and stress and anger. Studies actually show being in a hurry is not just a stress reaction, but it's a stress trigger. The brain actually releases more adrenaline into the body when you're in a hurry. And you feel more stress or concern or that life is somehow in danger, which is why we get angry or impatient with ourselves and with others. We stop experiencing grace and we lack grace. It's why when we're in a hurry, so many bad things seem to come out of us and we wreck community. We lack grace. But here's the thing. Jesus had a very specific response to hurry. There are several places in life where we have to do a little guessing, like what would Jesus say? Or what would Jesus do? Or what do you think Jesus meant by that? Jesus had a specific response to this. This is from Luke 10. It's an actual story. And many of you will know this. The text says, As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. And just so you know, in that day, hospitality was the supreme cultural value. To not show great hospitality would dishonor yourself and dishonor your guests. So you can imagine Martha's feeling some stress around her home. And the story continues. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to Jesus and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all of the work by myself? Have you ever said something like this before? Martha continues, tell her to help me. Martha, Martha. The Lord answered, can you just hear Jesus slowing her down? Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Let's just reflect on that story for a moment. Let's reflect and see what we can learn from it. First of all, could you hear the hurry in Martha's voice? Could you hear the rush, the anxiety of all the preparations, all the stress, all she has to do, all the pressure? Like, what if it doesn't go right? What if things aren't perfect? Or what if our guests aren't feeling honored? Have you, have you ever been in a moment when you just felt all of the stress, all of the burden, all of the pressure? And then hurry wells up inside of Martha and she begins to make assumptions about the world and about reality. First, she assumes Jesus doesn't care about her struggle. She says, Lord, don't you care? Don't you notice that all that I have to do? Aren't you going to do something about it? Isn't that how we feel when we feel rushed? Like we're the only person who is struggling and no one else really cares about it. 
Martha also assumes she's alone, doesn't she? My sister has left me to do all the work by myself. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever said that to maybe your spouse or significant other, maybe a colleague at work, maybe a friend? We're alone in our hurry. And when we feel alone, we start to hurry more. But here's the thing. It's what we have to see in the story. Martha was not alone, was she? Who was right there with her in the room? This isn't meant to be a trick question. We're in a church, all right? It was Jesus. Jesus was right there in the room with her. In her room, in her home, the God of the universe is just hanging out. You see, when hurry gets in us, we start to miss out on the one thing that matters to God. And that's that he's with us. And in that moment, God is with us. He's not stressed. He's not anxious. He's not demanding. He's not asking us to hurry. God is with us. Instead, we start to see only what can go wrong. Only what is not getting done. Only what isn't perfect. Only what could hurt our reputation. Only what we feel guilty about. Am I getting into your life yet? This is why the main thing we need to do this fall is not to do more faster and better. The main thing we need to do is ruthlessly and intentionally eliminate hurry from our lives. What else? There's nothing else. Well, how do we do this? The first thing is, we can't do this alone. You can't try harder to go slower and be more patient. Jesus puts it this way, and many of you are familiar with these words too. He says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Not burdens or tasks or to-do lists or more pressure. Take my yoke upon you, And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus is saying quite directly, don't try this alone. Come to me. Take my yoke upon you. A yoke is a harness that is worn by two oxen so that they can plow the field in step. And it only really worked when they were doing this at the same speed. And you see where Jesus is going with this? Jesus is not saying, I just want you to spend some time with me on Sundays at church or maybe in your hope groups. Jesus is saying, you actually have to do life at my rhythm, at my pace. And here's the thing. Jesus is never hurried. And I've looked through all the gospel stories. Jesus never hurried. It's remarkable. He was busy. There were demands on his time. There was emotional urgency. There was pressure. There were times that were stressful. There was plenty to do. It wasn't like there was nothing to do in the first century. He had demands, but he was never hurried. He didn't have to hurry. You see, we all are busy. We all have things to do. But there's a distinction that I want you to take note of. Busyness is an outward condition of your body. Hurry 
is an inward condition of your soul. Busyness is an outward condition of your body. But hurry is an inward condition of your soul. And if you look at Jesus' life, he intentionally set up a rhythm of life to resist the temptation to hurry. He would get up early and spend time alone in prayer. He would sometimes wait when others felt the need to rush. He had the courage to say no, even to urgent requests. That's Jesus' yoke. That's his rhythm of life. And we have to learn to walk in step with that. And, I friend, and friends, I know that this sounds like it isn't that spiritual or it's not really that important. You may be thinking, this can't be the main thing we have to do. The main thing we have to do is learn to walk in this rhythm of life, especially in the world that we live in today. And I want to close with just a few practical suggestions for you. Some things that you can do, whether you're a person who has incredible faith or you don't have much faith at all. And these are practical, simple things that any person can try. Here's the first thing. Set a time each day to practice slowing. One of the best ways to combat a habit of speeding up is to introduce a habit of slowing down. And I've been experimenting with this for a little bit in my life. And I have set up a 10-minute time each day where I'll just stop whatever I'm doing. I'll just stop. My email's closed. My phone's off. My Twitter's in tweeting. And I just sit in silence. I slow down my breathing. And I just do nothing. Which is usually about the time when Jim walks into my office to find out what I'm doing. But that's another story. The point is not to have some spiritual epiphany. The point is to simply allow my body to experience unhurried time. Your body needs to experience unhurried time. And it's those moments I begin to realize and become aware of things that I forget or lose sight of when I'm in a hurry. Things like God really cares about my life. I'm not actually unknown in whatever, alone in whatever I'm doing. And God is going to continue to walk with me wherever I go, whatever I face. The very same thoughts I know you forget when you're rushing around in your life are the thoughts that can come into your soul through unhurried time. There's a lot of different ways that you can do this in your life. You don't have to do it that way. But the one rule is you can't do something else at the same time. Okay? You cannot multitask. Multitasking is cheating when it comes to slowing down. So the point is to just stop and slow down. Uh, the second thing is to take advantage of opportunities to wait. Now, quick question. Does anyone else in here hate waiting? It's okay to raise your hand, all right? Um, not, nobody's really being honest. Okay, a few of you are being a little honest. Good, good. Well, just this past week, I was stuck behind this huge tractor trailer on my way to church on Tuesday evening. And there was nobody behind me, but this guy pulled right in front of me and decided to drive 10 miles an hour under the speed limits. And I was running behind. I was running a little late. So my plan was to drive 10 miles an hour over the speed limits. And he was ruining all of that. And so in that moment, I thought, well, maybe God is just training me to be more patient. And as I, as I thought about that and smiled, 
I could feel the anxiety slowly leaving my body. God is training all of us in moments, in the moments that we wait, to be more patient. We have an opportunity whenever we wait to have a moment with God, to have a moment with God that we wouldn't otherwise have. When you encounter a slowdown in traffic or a line at the store, use it as a time to pray or rest or just not be hurried for a moment. I love how the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah put it. He said, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. Think about that. The Lord is good to those who wait. As in, God has a good thing in store for you when you practice this. When you take advantage of opportunities to wait, God has something good for you. Anyone else in here need something good from God today? I know I do. And God has good things for us when we pause and wait and listen and reflect. Okay, third thing, schedule time alone. Do you know what brings up the most anxiety for people in our world today? It's the anxiety we feel when we have nothing to do. And that's a problem. So we have to confront this intentionally by actually scheduling time to be alone, to schedule unscheduled time. And I know this is complicated with family and work, and you may have to take turns with your spouse if you have kids or schedule it into your workday. If you're a follower of Jesus, you should spend at least one day a year in solitude. Just a scheduled day for time alone. Not because you need a break to rest, because, but because it's in those moments we actually discover what's actually going on inside our souls. Some of you have no idea what's churning deep down inside you. You've been moving so fast. You've been avoiding so much. You've been just unwilling to even uncover the pain or the hurt or the fear or the doubt. That is not what God wants for you. God is not asking you to just keep moving and get by. He wants you to experience joy and peace and life. And we need time alone to just allow that time to come to the surface. And so schedule some time alone. The fourth thing is learn to say no. Learn to say no. And some of you, I'm sure, are already experts at this. But this, as it turns out, can be a real challenge for us yes people. I'm a yes person. I don't know about you, but I'm a yes person. And I have this terrible habit of saying yes. Not because I want to. Not because I want to be helpful or that I need to be helpful. And if I'm being honest, it's because I want people to keep thinking well about me. And so I keep saying yes. And piling things on my to-do list. When in reality, I should say no. We have to learn it's okay to say no. In fact, I think we should just practice this just for a moment, okay? So just turn to the person next to you and say no. Just a good hearty no. Go ahead. Doesn't that feel good? I feel like I may be wreaking havoc in marriages in this room right now. <laughs> Sometimes we just need to learn to say no like Mike. We can't always say no, but there's always something we can, some time we can, 
So this week, there may be something you can say no to, you know, that will help you live an unhurried life. Final thing, take a weekly Sabbath. And this may be the most difficult, but I think it may be the most important. Take a weekly Sabbath. For six days a week, it's okay to think about productivity and efficiency and getting more stuff done. But then you get a day that's different. God commands us in this. He says, life is not 24-7. It's 24-6. You get a day that's different. And there are a lot of ways to experiment with the Sabbath day in your life. Maybe it's a day of not checking your email or responding to work calls. Maybe it's a day to spend with your family. Maybe it's a day you spend alone in solitude and letting God speak into your life. Maybe it's a day spent reading or in prayer or studying scripture. Maybe it's just a day with close friends, focusing on the relationships and having conversations you wouldn't otherwise have. That's how community happens. Maybe it's a day to just do something you love, but you never have time to do. If you love to cook, cook. If you love to play golf, play golf. If you love to go bowling, for crying out loud, find a better sport. <laughs> every week, every week, and I'm serious about this. Every week, you get a day that's different. Here's the thing. I know what you're thinking. John, that sounds like something who is, uh, somebody who's real spiritual would do something like that. You know, maybe somebody who doesn't have as many commitments as I do. I just don't have time. Maybe you're a little overcommitted and you've taken on one more thing than you should and you just need to say no. And here's the thing. We always have time for what matters most. A while back, I saw someone post this on social media they said, God doesn't call you to a life you don't have time for. Just think about that. God doesn't call you to a life that you don't have time for. And if you don't feel like you have enough time, something has to change. This is serious. Something has to change. Your life is too important for this not to change. Friends, life is too important not to do this. Your family is too important not to do this. Your community is too important not to do this. Which means you have a decision to make right now. And this week, will you intentionally commit to start to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life? Will you do it? Will you resist the temptation to rush when you don't need to? Will you stop and take moments to be still, to be quiet, and to remember that God is with you right there, even if he feels miles away? Because you see, the slowing won't happen by accident. It won't happen just because you might dream about it or that you want it to. You can't do it without God's grace. And he can't do it without your intention, your will, and your effort. It's a cooperative relationship. You must take his yoke upon you. You must walk in step with him. So what's it going to be? Which one of the five will you commit to take on this week to ruthlessly eliminate hurry?
Let's pray. Oh God, thank you that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Would you help us to remember that in the midst of our everyday lives, thank you for promising to give all of us who feel worried and rushed and pressured the rest and peace for our souls. If we'll just come before you. You already know all that concerns us and you care. We are grateful that you're a God who tells us that we don't have to carry it all on our own. Forgive us for the times we've tried to fix things in our own power or not taking the time to rest or not to come to you first with our needs and burdens. Thank you for seasons of refreshing that come from your spirit, filling us with joy, covering us as a shield, and leading us forward with hope. Help us to slow down and fix our eyes on you and remember where our true peace and strength are found. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, I'd like to invite those who are helping with the offering to come forward. Would you hurry it up? <laughs> that was good. <laughs> Mom, trying to get out of here. We got a lunch to go to. So this is our, our time of our morning where uh, we give back a portion of what God has given to us. And um, worship just isn't a matter of singing. It's not a matter of just listening to a sermon, but it's, uh, it's participatory. Uh, it involves engagement on, on our end. And, uh, and this is a part of that, too. So uh, as you give back uh, to God's kingdom and the work that God is doing throughout the city and different parts of the world, and, uh, my humble prayer is that you do it with joy. Uh, and you do it with freedom. Um, don't forget to drop your uh, connect card into the offering basket as that goes by. And we can find ways to connect with you and pray for you and celebrate with you. So uh, let's pray and then we'll collect. Oh God, I thank you so much for this morning. And God, we do need to uh, be mindful of the pace that we carry in life. Uh, the world around us is just going to usher us forward and hurry us along, and that just brings a litany of feelings like anxiety and anger and fear. And so would you help us to slow down, to recognize what you're calling us to do, how you're calling us to live, as we take the light and easy yoke from you and walk in step with you. And so we pray all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.